The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hey everyone, it's Michelle Williams, and I love being able to share my story with you on my podcast, Checking In with Michelle Williams, where my guests and I, we get real as we share the ups and downs of our mental health journeys, and I'd love for you to join me. Hey, it's going to be your church and your turn up. So listen to Checking In with Michelle Williams every Tuesday, a part of the Black Effect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by my buddy Peter Overzet. Uh, the first time he's been on this show in a couple of months. So Pete and I took this time to catch up uh, since we last chatted with you guys when Laird was on the show about uh, COVID, zero running back, Bitcoin, uh, phone addiction, you know, just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, some everything and some nothing. I think that you guys who generally enjoy uh, the Peter Overzet shows are, of course, going to enjoy this one, uh, if you want to support the show, you can get bonus episodes on patreon.com slash takecast. And also you can just leave a rating and review on the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's go ahead and get into the show. All right, everyone. Welcoming in friend of the show, Peter Overzet. Not to, not the most recurring guest, but I mean, at this point we do like three shows with each other a week and in various platforms. How you doing this morning, buddy? Doing good. I was thinking I have to be getting up there, right? I have to be in the top five. I mean, Dink is the most. Yeah, you you got to be in the top five, though. Yeah, it's okay. like it's it's like you and Pat and Dink are are the most recurring. Oh yeah, my Gallagher done lots of, with Pat. If you count like the Corona Cast feed swap stuff, then he's definitely at the top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people. I just you know my uh, my more successful and more entertaining friends. I got to bring them on the show as often as possible to keep to keep people clicking. Uh, but you know, this last week was, it was the first time I ever felt blessed to not be overly successful because, uh, when, when Twitter got hacked and all of the verified accounts were able to stop tweeting, I was able, I was able to tweet through it. We were, we were all liberated. All of the, all of the non blue checks, we were, we were liberated. We were, the inmates were running the asylum. Now, did I never heard from anyone that we knew with a blue check that they actually weren't able to tweet did you hear no, that, rich, that was confirmed? rich and jj both confirmed that they could not tweet like i was i was texting them like you you know is there anything you need me to pass on to the folks and they were like straight up they could not tweet uh, so what was did they say what it was like if they logged in did it just was it grayed out like how did it look for them i saw i saw a screenshot that someone else posted with a blue check and it just gave that twitter error message of like when you went to go click like send tweet or whatever it would just be like an error has occurred try again later or whatever man man what a what a nice 25 minutes for for the rest of us to just 
be freed from the tyranny of the condescension of blue check marks and their stupid tweets. It was it was like everything that Jay Kang has ever tweeted about or ever wanted, but he himself has a blue check, so he could not celebrate in it. What a, a very tough moment for the host of Coin Talk Show. What if Twitter had this feature that was kind of, and obviously because I've been doing these randomizer shows, a randomizer theme is in my head, but if it was just like Twitter had these randomizer days where it was like, yeah, no blue check marks can tweet or only people with less than a thousand followers could tweet and just these weird social experiments, <laughs> that would be wild. I mean, if there is one social media CEO that you could talk into this being a brilliant idea, it's definitely Jack, right? Like he's the one guy who would be like, oh yeah, no, totally. We need to, we need to, uh, we need to explore this idea further and a silent meditation retreat. Yeah, it is truly fat. Like it does feel like we got this, the social network uh, movie and then we got the, the Bitcoin, uh, what was that called? Bitcoin billionaires. I read it. Uh the book or the documentary yeah, on Netflix? The book. The book. Um, that was the follow-up. The guy who wrote um, the script in the I book. Am, that, I'm not, I'm, I've, never, I've never read that book. I'm not sure. I'm blanking on it. Some, but it's about the Winklevi twins, right? And how they were kind of positioned as, you know, the foils to Mark Zuckerberg. And now they kind of have Bitcoin and they have their site Gemini. But as you were talking about Jack Dorsey another foil to kind of Mark Zuckerberg of thinking about the intermittent fasting, meditation loving Jack Dorsey on Twitter, you know, paired against the Mark Zuckerberg totalitarian, you know, kind of regime. Yeah, at the, the ultra capitalist, like the, the, well, really Zuckerberg's kind of a fascist, really, if you, if you really want to go down that road yeah. in, in a way. So now I'm hoping we get there's it maybe Zuckerberg is just the ultimate um kind of anti-hero that we can pit various other uh people against. Um have you ever have you ever heard of the the novel The Circle by Dave Eggers? It's also made into a, a movie with Emma Watson, which was decent enough, but it's not important if you haven't. But basically it's a book about someone who works at a, a Facebook, a Google, an Amazon style, like like campus. I guess Amazon probably doesn't really have a campus the way that, that Google and Facebook do, but it is it is um, a, a chilling look at the totalitarianism that is possible because, and, and this actually, when we, when, um, when we read Uncanny Valley and talked about it with Laird, like there are already things that Amazon and Google do that make them more powerful than the American government. They have power over, you know, specifically like web commerce and like Amazon, your, your favorite website cannot exist without Amazon cloud services. Right. And, and therefore a lot of businesses like the people actually, I don't even think realize how much power specifically those two companies have. Right. And that's the kind of trade-off that we have consumers have made is we give up our information, our privacy in exchange for convenience, convenience. Uh, or that in the sake of like, you know, the American government or NSA, we actually don't seem to have a choice in that one, but we are willing to just give it up to Amazon and Google to make our lives easier. Well, I, and I'm, I'm sort of wondering you know, like when Amazon began, like has Amazon been too fast for the government to legislate against? Has Google been too fast? Because, you know, obviously things in the federal government, they just take a while, right? That's just kind of the way the federal government works. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering if like the laws and ways to limit the power of Amazon and Google, like those guys, they like those 
massive corporations actually just worked faster than the government could work to like slow their progress down. And now it's kind of this, it's this uneasy power bargain between these private entities and the, the corporate entities, you know, or, or the, the governmental entities. Well, and not to mention the past four years have been incredibly kind to ultra large businesses and corporations, whether in the form of bailouts or removing, you know, restrictions and stuff that the auto industry has to abide by, you know, that these, these big businesses have had every possible break they could ever dream of tax relief. I mean, it's insane how, how hot they have run this past four years. Well, and this is a, I mean, this is a point that Ike Haxton made on Joey Ingram's Poker Life podcast, which I would encourage. I mean, I assume a lot of people listen to this probably would like all of Joey's stuff. It's just like the last 40 years of the existence of the Republican Party has just been to make the federal government shittier, like to make it not work. And the ultimately the Trump regime and the response to the coronavirus and, you know, how like unemployment and everything right now, ultimately like this is the final answer to that process because now that we need the federal government to work, it just stone cold uh, does not work. Like, like people who need help, like right now, the big thing is uh, as you and I are recording this, we are on July 17th, 2020. All of the extension of unemployment benefits are set to expire on July 31st. That was part of that first initial relief act. And no, like they can't agree on another bailout package. So those benefits are just going to expire. And that's like a prime example of the federal government needing to do something. And it's just, it literally can't get stuff done with a two week deadline. You know what I mean? Isn't it ironic too that uh, how much there's this glorification of the flag and our monuments and all these things, which is Mm -hmm. in a way, it's like, it's praising this institution. It's like America above all. And yet, as you just described, how many initiatives are actually trying to strip that institution of the kind of structure and infrastructure that helps people have a good quality of life. It is a, a very, very cruel irony. Well, yeah, that is, I mean, you get, you get at a very good point, which is like when people say they love America, they don't actually mean it. What they mean is like, they love the life that they have in the United States, right? They love their house. They love their comforts. They love knowing that like, you know, things are secure for me. Things are going to work out for me, but like they have no, they have no passion towards the actual, like what the constitution means what the ideals of the country were founded on, like they, they could give a shit less, you know, which is yeah. weird. No, it, it also makes me think, uh, I think uh, my buddy John Solis recycled this uh, old tweet a, a little while ago and it was old uh, message board post from our friend Fantasy Douche and talking about how the stick to sports crowd, what they're actually saying is they just don't want to hear your political beliefs speak. And he uses the example of the NFL taking money from, from the, the U.S. Department government yeah, to do these patriotic displays. And we all are so excited for that version of politics, which is inherently political. It's yet that these other displays, whether it has to do with social justice or any of these other issues, then that's when it's offending our sensibilities and we should stick to sports. So again, another um, kind of picking and choosing and ironic picking and choosing of which politics we're okay with. Have you been following Rotopat going in and reading the Titans mailbag every single week that's published in the, I don't know the name of the big newspaper in 
Tennessee, but basically like for whatever reason, this poor Titans beat writer is just getting it. And of course, uh, you know, the Tennessee Titans, our friends, soccer Dave, they, they love their country and they love things the way they go. But this, this poor Titans beat writer has just been inundated with people who are so tilted about the idea of the national anthem not being played at, at sporting events. And I was kind of thinking about it and what, I mean, what purpose is there ever for a national anthem to be played between like corporations? Cause that's what, that's what NFL teams are. That's what NBA teams are. That's what NHL, they, these are corporations who are, you know, staging like fake gladiator battles to like earn more money. I totally get why a national anthem would be played at the Olympics at the world cup. Um, you know, at the, at the FIBA stuff, you know, when, when um, the basketball teams play, like I totally get that. There, there's not a reason for the national anthem to be played at sports games, right? No. Yeah. It, it is funny when you say, you know, uh, that NFL stadiums, you know, just being this like corporate like battle, even in a literal sense. Like I remember growing up mile high stadium in Denver had mm-hmm. one of the best home field advantages. It was similar to Arrowhead as far as like the noise and decibel levels there. And then they tore it down. They built Invesco Field at Mile High, which is now. So, and it, it's all filled with corporate boxes. People who were fans couldn't afford the lower bowl. And the entire noise kind of home field advantage was, was stripped. So both in a figurative and literal sense, it's just a corporate battle playing out. And that is, um, like, this is, a, this is a huge thing about, like, you know, the largest sports leagues in the world where, like, I mean, like, when, when's the last time, like, a real Lakers fan sat in the lower bowl at, at the Staples Center? You know, like, probably, like, the 80s. Like, it's just, like, there's got to be, like, almost no, like, raucous cheering at Lakers games in a regular season game. But, for example, and I don't know if this is true still. I haven't been to a Thunder game in, like, two or three years. But, you know, it's in Oklahoma City. It's right downtown. But, like, tickets are just super affordable because it's in Oklahoma City and things are just – more affordable there relative to how things would be in LA. So like that, that was a place where, you know, the, the arena would be super crazy, but um, this is actually like a, a real debate in English soccer where fans actually like, like protested and were like not buying tickets to games until there were artificial price caps put on tickets where like, you cannot charge more than, I think it's like 50 pounds for a seat for a game in England right now. And uh, just, like, imagine trying to institute that rule in, in the United States. Like, those protests would be <laughs> – I don't even know if anyone would protest it. Like, it just it's, – it's totally foreign to our idea of life here. Yeah. It's actually – and I, I'm probably uh, speaking out of school here a little bit because I'm not as intimately familiar with it. But, like, with the theater world – you know, there's tons of lottery stuff to get mm-hmm. people who can't afford these outrageous prices to go see Hamilton that they can still go see it. And it, 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 there's nothing really like that with sports, where there's just this lottery thing where everyone has an equal chance to get these good seats to uh, to a sporting event. It would be interesting to see if we did implement some kind of hybrid thing like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's, let's let's chat a little COVID, a little COVID NFL. Um, it's seeming like the the NFL doesn't have a plan, and and Pete, I'm I'm scared, buddy. I am I am bummed out because, I mean, weren't weren't all of us just assuming? Well, the NFL has like six months to figure this out. Like they'll they have a plan, right? And and I feel like it's like these guys. There's so much money at stake. How have they not been planning? 
Yeah, and what gets me almost even above the planning, like I was prepared to see an NFL plan and everyone kind of laugh and be like, man, this is unrealistic. How do they expect teams to do this? But at least there would be a plan. Right now, my biggest issue, there's no communication, at least that we're hearing. I know there's some small conversations between the NFL and a few people from the NFL PA, but on the whole, like the lack of communication is stunning. We've seen the news where uh, the Chiefs are starting to invite people to camp. Other people haven't done that yet. I mean, the, the level of disorganization for an organization this huge is, is staggering. And they figured out the NFL draft, right, on the fly. Like, they had, they had, they had under a month to figure out the NFL draft, really. Like, they kind of had, like, three weeks to be like, okay, we're canceling it, we're not doing it, and we're going to set up the virtual draft, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. And it pretty much – I mean, Goodell, like, fell asleep, like, twice. But other than that, it, it kind of it went off without a hitch. And, you know, it seems like both the NFL and the NFLPA are like, you know – abandoning the preseason there's just no real reason to have these preseason games um but uh, also like the the rules about like okay once you get once you get um once you test positive for covid you are you go to a three-week covid dl list like it just it seems like a lot of uh, a lot of throwing stuff against the wall at this point yeah and the thing that it's like I want to start hearing the contingencies for what happens when an entire team, team. or li- because all of these rules, it's like, oh yes, this one individual on the team gets COVID and they sit out and then they come back and, and then no one else hungry. and no one yeah. else. It's like, no, that's not how this works. Like we're gonna have super spreaders. These guys are gonna be around each other all the time. Like you will theoretically lose entire position groups, an entire side of the ball, an entire special teams unit. I mean, what are the contingencies? Are they gonna allow? postponements of games rescheduling or is it going to be you just have to figure it out from an expanded practice squad and the product some weeks is going to be very very bad personally I think I'm rooting for like literal like hundred man rosters with like crazy practice squads right like I, I actually think that is the most rational way to think that a 16 game schedule gets played is just by allowing teams to have huge rosters because also it sounds like have you heard the word bubble proposed one time or or like centralized location for these games I have not heard that discussed by anyone as it pertains to NFL games yeah no I I think what happened and I I had read something early on uh where some reporter was asked about this and it, it makes sense right like the NBA you have what 15 guys on a roster a couple coaches couple trainers it's like maybe a 25 person operation so in Orlando you have you know x amount of teams there's space for that the NFL that operation balloons to what 100 150 people if you oh, include all the for, players for for an NFL team if you include every coach on the payroll strength and conditioning I mean, we're talking 200 plus, and that's like without executives or anything who also are going to want to be involved. Right. And then the whole thing, again, goes to the super spreader thing where it could be completely counterproductive of, yeah, you could keep all those guys together, but if one person gets it, um, it, it wipes out an entire organization. So I, I don't think the bubble was ever feasible um, for the NFL and yeah, I, it'll, I, I, it is, I think, probably – the NFL was probably hoping to be able to tail the NBA and MLB a little bit more with how they were doing things. And then that's they what, never that's got what Laird together. said. What, yeah. what, what Laird told you and I was that the NFL was hoping that baseball and football would figure it out. And as of right now, 
So I actually, if I, I would make the NBA getting to an NBA finals, I would make that like plus 120. Like, I think it's pretty, pretty rational, but it seems like they have it kind of figured out enough to be able to get there. Um, and you know, guys who are guys who are getting it are, you know, quarantining or whatever, like staying away from their teammates. Baseball, I don't know, because they're they're still traveling for baseball, right? Like their their current plan is to still like fly from city to city and, you know, I don't I guess stay in hotels. Like it's not like there's a, a facility for these guys to go and stay at in every different town. So I I feel less confident about baseball playing through, but also they have a deeper player pool to pull from in baseball where like, Oh, you know, one of your pitchers gets injured. You can literally go get a guy off of his couch, uh, have him test. And if, you know, 24 hours later, his test is fine. He can play. Um, but like, as of yesterday, the, the city of Washington DC told the nationals, they were not legally allowed to play their home games there. Like, Oh, you actually can't play due to our, our ordinances in the city. So baseball starts in about a week and they don't know where they're playing their games. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I mean, Dana uh, White with the UFC ran into that initially in Las Vegas where they're like, dude, you can't have this at your UFC center here. And then he ended up, uh, I don't know how he did it. That guy just gets things done, but he got them to agree to it. So I don't know if some of these MLB owners or whatever, if they get together with the state and are like, uh, hey, uh, earmark an exception for us. But yeah, it's... um. It's going to be a mess. I think in like a perfect world for baseball, and again, I don't even know, you'd almost have like this mini bubble where you'd be like in the Midwest, like triangulated in between like four or five stadiums and have everyone Completely kind of, agree. Yeah, yeah, like that would work out. And again, they're not like in the same, you know, Disneyland complex, but just where it's like they're, they're able to drive to games and they're able to stay separated, be outside. But I don't know where that would happen. <laughs> Um, I mean, so what I was thinking was there is a way that they could do Kansas City, St. Louis, Detroit, Minnesota, and Kansas City and St. Louis are, well, just because the mid, like the Midwest actually, despite having the type of people who are, um, not, not mask wearers in, uh, not mask wearers in overall, just like the fact that everything is so spread out has just made it easier to contain the spread. And then Minnesota, obviously, you know, one of the uh, one of the most lib states that there's going to be has been a super mask wearing state. Uh, I don't actually know about I don't actually know about Detroit. I just know that um, that would be that would be a location that was close. And uh, Chicago is like a covid nightmare. So they wouldn't be able to play there. That would be like a way I, I thought there would be a hub plan like that. I didn't think that guys would literally be like, I mean, what are they all taking? I guess every MLB team has a private plane, right? Probably you would you would think i actually don't know that i don't know either yeah my guess would be that they um actually this would be my guess and i'm sure someone will correct us that they have um a a company that they have a contract with that has like a fleet of planes and then they like use that company as their private charter for all of their flights as opposed to having a single Air Force One style plane for the Colorado Rockies. That would be my guess. It feels like the more variables you introduce like that though, like other people also being in that plane and stuff, like that just makes it more and more likely for a a, a super spreading type situation. Cause like imagine getting on an airplane where one person is COVID positive. How many like how many people are gonna have COVID when they get off that plane? Like it, it seems like that's like the the perfect environment for it. 
I think what's frustrating for me uh, with all of this stuff and it's playing out in all different industries. My wife works out of school and they're debating right now, are we doing some hybrid model? Do we have some of yeah. our older teachers teach remotely with the kids there? Are we going just all online? And, and what happens with the planning is you, because you have to think through all these scenarios, well, each scenario has 10 different questions that then have to follow up. So all of a sudden you're just paralyzed by all of these decision trees and don't actually have a plan in place. And I feel like that's what the NFL has. It's like, we just need to commit to some kind the of one path plan and just go all in on making that happen. Like Harvard already just said, all of our stuff's online and now they're going to have the entire summer to plan to, to execute that. And I just right. feel like the NFL is still considering all these scenarios and it's like, we are done with scenarios. We need to pick a plan. And yeah, go they are. Um, they're still doing the like, okay, well, uh, if we do end up playing, you know, only, um, only 25, only 25% uh, of the stands can be filled or whatever, which is just like, I mean, at that point, like, what are you doing? Like what, what is the point of, of discussing a scenario in which fans are at the games? Like that is a 0.05% scenario of ever happening. Like get it together. Right. And it's like, come on, the, the big money that everyone doesn't want to lose here is the TV, TV deals. TV money. Yeah. I mean, obviously teams make money from selling tickets, but it's still a fraction of what they make on the TV deal. Let's just get guys playing games. How can that not be our goal right now? So uh, some good news, though. I did hear it reported that all wide receivers and tight ends are immune from coronavirus, from, from COVID-19, and I think that is going to work out really well for our fantasy football strategy in 2020. Yeah, I triggered some people. We were uh, You had initially shared that Roto World blurb with me, the one about um, how they were tossing around the idea that a player would have to sit out for three weeks. And I made a joke about uh, people having to get on board with zero RB, whether they like it or not. And I actually was ready for these replies, but I get all the people saying, oh, well, what about wide receivers and tight ends and quarterbacks? Are, are they just immune and only running backs are going to get it? Which are those people telling on, on themselves, Davis, for – revealing how they don't understand how opportunity works in a contingency way for running backs versus yeah it's it's just treating it's just treating a wide receiver injury in terms of replacement level the same way a running back injury works and everyone who has played a meaningful amount of fantasy football knows that's not the way it goes when when uh when michael thomas gets injured uh, I'm not going to be projecting Emmanuel Sanders for 23 PPR points the next week but when Alvin Kamara gets injured I'm going to expect Latavius Murray to score a, a lot of points the next week. Like that's just kind of the way it goes. And I don't know why people are still not understanding this. Yeah. The example that was jumping out in my head as a really good one would be like, okay, say you're someone that's drafting David Johnson in like the fourth or fifth round, a place where you and I are going to be avoiding running backs and players with his profile. And right. then say we are stashing our zero RB candidate bench with guys like Duke Johnson. And then you're, you're saying, well, well, running back or wide receivers have just as much of a chance to, to get hurt. So you're, you're saying um, in this scenario, if Duke Johnson, or sorry, if David Johnson gets hurt, we are going to have a plug and play starter with Duke Johnson. No question. We know he's going to get an uptick in carries and touches and all this. Now, if say Will Fuller gets scratched, what are you plugging and playing Randall Cobb with the utmost confidence? No, those targets are going to get distributed across the tight end, across Kenny Stills, across Brandon Cooks. So it just seems like such a disingenuous argument to not understand that running backs and zero running backs specifically will be the largest beneficiary of chaos this season in the, in the NFL. 
and I think, so I think this is probably the biggest difference between running back and wide receiver injuries, which is that targets are allocated based on skill because you have to be open. Whereas carries are not allocated upon skill. Like you can just give a bad running back 20 carries like, and it just does like coaches do that all the time. Right. You know, we're, we're going to go out like Alfred Morris going to get 20 carries if, if he's, the, if he's the last guy standing and that's just is what it is. But you know, uh, Demir bird is not earning 15 target games. Yeah. I was talking with Pat Corain about this too. And he, he made the a similar point where, you know, if Todd Gurley gets scratched, whatever running back they sub in there, their offense isn't going to take a huge hit. But if Julio Jones goes out the entire offense. Yeah. Ola means a Right. Yeah. So it's just, uh, I think it's a pretty silly argument. Uh, and, uh, I know people love pushing back on zero RB and there's actually smart ways to push back against it. This is not one of those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been thinking about this a ton because I obviously drafted a zero running back team in the Scott fishbowl. And I've been trying to think of like, okay, well, what are some of like the obvious ways that this goes wrong? And one of them is, you know, in the formats that you and I really like to play, which are these high stakes leagues on um, the FFPC and stuff, the playoffs start in week 13 and like really you got like you cannot afford a slow start like if you're sitting there waiting in week five and you're one and four and you're like waiting for Tony Pollard to to start some games for the Cowboys like that's a like that's a massive like that's a massive thing and in fact like some of these like hold out running backs like for example if Dalvin Cook holds out for like six weeks Madison might be like worth like a, a fifth round pick or whatever just because he's going to be so valuable at getting those points at the start. So that's one of the reasons why zero RB is, you know, not as good. Yeah, no, I mean, Pat and I learned that the hard way. I mean, we've had uh, a multiple seasons where we went very hardcore zero RB and our teams ended up getting pretty good down the stretch, but it was too little too late. Too late. I mean, our first year, we like literally it was the tale of two seasons. We were like one in five and then snapped off six in a row and still barely missed the playoffs. So we've learned our lesson. And even with our current main event draft, we've been more uh, purposeful in our detours to grab running backs to make sure that we aren't leaving ourselves overexposed because we were trying to stick a square peg in a square hole with that specific format. That said, it definitely um, lowers your floor in your 12-team league. I still think zero RB in general. If you're highest ceiling goal, way to build a team, yeah. If you want to win that five hundred thousand dollars, it's going to be having you know four top 12 wide receivers and a top tight end filling out your starting spots, and then binking the Chase Edmonds, Tony Pollard starters down the stretch. That's that's how you can win five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, and I think this is. Uh, that's like the number one thing that people get wrong when, you know, when people are posting their uh, best ball championship teams and people are posting their main event teams, when people are posting their Scott Fishbowl teams, they go, well, who are you starting at running back, bro? You starting JK Dobbins, bro? Like he might be the third running back on his team. And, and I mean, I think the most obvious thing is like, literally dude, no one, no one knows who finished the second in these tournaments, right? It's literally, it's literally all about, how can I maximize? Uh, how can I maximize the point scoring inputs of my team? And it's you know binking a thirteenth round running back who earns first round value. 
Right. And that's the thing. No one, zero running back uh, truthers are not disagreeing with the premise that you need 20 point per game running back guys by the end of the season in your running back slot. No one's disagreeing with that. You need those bell cow backs to ship these leagues. We're just going about it in a different way because we know that it's going to be much easier to have DJ Moore putting up 20 point per games for us than whatever wide receiver you grab off of waivers where the same can't be said for the running back that we could pick up off of waivers. You know, I always think of the Tim Hightower example from a few years ago. I mean, absolute scrub who just comes in and smashes. CJ Anderson. Yeah. I mean, the, the list of them is long. So yeah, I'm not disagreeing with the needing bell cow running backs. It's just the price you pay to get them. And to go back to your initial point, and we just see this over and over. People want to feel good about, about their starting the screenshot. Line. They want to feel the yeah. comfort of that balance. And balance doesn't uh, mean anything. I mean, Leone was talking about this in the context of Scott Fishbowl and that you have all these starting spots. And people are like, oh, your RB2 sucks. And it's like, well, actually, that's my flex nine. My, and everyone's going to struggle at flex nine. So, like, who cares? Who cares? So when, so that's actually why those formats are so fun. It's even more conducive to zero RB and modified zero RB because you can hammer people in all of these other positions. Yeah. In any format where you can start more players, wide receivers become more valuable because the wide receiver 30 in the NFL today with how much teams are passing, with how much teams are scoring, obviously with points per reception, like the RB, the RB 30 is going to be, you know, some dust bucket who has like four startable games all year, right? And the wide receiver 30 might be DK Metcalf, who scores like 14 and a half fantasy points per game and has like a bunch of these spiked weeks. Like, and people are so uncomfortable making that trade off because they're starting Naheem Hines at running back two, but your wide receiver five in, and the FFWC is like this too. Like your wide receiver five could be Robert Woods, you know, and, and people are just, they are, they're so uncomfortable with that trade off. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to, to get past that kind of psychological block. But again, just look, you know, Rotovis has this win the flex tool. It can literally show you at every position when it's more valuable to select a running back. And it's basically the first five picks. And then it's not until like the ninth or 10th round that it switches over. And this is just talking, obviously, in a macro sense. If you think you are above average at player selection, then go for it. Take your detours. But just in the macro aggregate, wide receivers and tight ends are generally always going to be the better pick rounds two through 10. It's literally just math. It's literally just math. Well, I mean, you know, one thing I have learned during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm, I'm not like very good at math. I would rate myself at adept at like, st- like applied statistics for DFS and fantasy football and stuff. But I am, I'm certainly no uh, like motto builder mathematician or anything. But something I have learned during the COVID-19 pandemic is American statistical literacy and like understanding of, you know, applying exponential uh, growth and stuff to life is it's like scarily bad of like not like not understanding like oh yeah something that was bad two weeks ago can get worse right of not just looking at the numbers and being like oh things are just gonna stay like this I don't know it, it seemed terrifying to me how bad people were at understanding uh the way math can work in their actual daily life yeah yep And again, I've been bringing up this point lately too. Like if you want to look at 
there's not as much win rate data for season long managed leagues just because there's so many variables with the waiver yes. wire and stuff. But for best ball stuff, again, ultimately we're talking about seven to eight percentage point difference in win rates. So people have in their head like, oh, I need all these you know, running backs to win my league. And it's like, well, first of all, the win rates don't reflect that and your win rates can be at seven or 8%. And then on the other side, the zero RB guys are saying, look, you can boost your win rate up to 13, 14, 15%. If you do these things, modified zero RB or zero RB, if you don't get one of those top guys. So again, we're still not going to be winning our team over a fifth of the time, our league. So it's like, none of these are, when we say we prefer zero RB, it's not because it's a surefire way to win your league. It's just giving you the best probability. It's just giving you a little bit better of a chance. Yeah. A little bit better. So ultimately we're all arguing about seven or eight percentage points. And um, that's great for us content guys, because we can have something <laughs> that's ultimately not a massive thing. Um, but again, if you're a volume guy, if you're doing a hundred drafts, those percentage points, those, add it up. adds up. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it really, really does. That's actually one thing um, that my exploration into poker during COVID has taught me is just like continually making small, correct decisions over thousands of iterations is one of like the, you know, the absolute best ways to turn a profit in any activity, you know, whether that be poker, obviously, whether that be like sports betting, fantasy football, whatever, like just, but, but like it is actually a big deal over time to, be drafting Leonard Fournette in the third round because you are, you're losing so much in your expected ROI doing that basically. Yep. Yep. Not to, uh, not to go like full Naval or anything, but uh, I mean this, this whole conversation about zero RB, like there, there is a greater lesson to learn about life, which is just that many of the things that are required from people now to make money, to be successful in business, whatever, is actually like counterintuitive to our programming as human beings that have existed for, you know, whatever, a hundred thousand years. And like that, like there's all of these, there's all of these books now. I think mean, you just read, you just read range, right? Um, mm -hmm. Flow, the book that Leone recommends to everybody, like, like all of these books and, and really the, what the, and uh, you know, all of Nassim Taleb's books as well. Like, what, uh, what they all point at is like the things that we are, the way that we are programmed to like instinctively respond to a lot of external stimulus is bad and wrong. And we should just be trying to think of things differently. I don't know. That wasn't a very, that was not a very cogent point. No, I mean, in a more like practical sense, I mean, I've been dealing with this the past few weeks and well, actually the past few months, but like my productivity in stuff is just night and day when I have my structure and my to-do list and I close out tweet deck, I mean, I can just have these like what feel to me like otherworldly productive days. Whereas when right. you let yourself be pulled by all of the random shiny things, I can literally have a whole day go by where I did nothing, but nothing around. And I think that's kind of in the micro sense of what you're describing too, of like, you really have to tone out uh, to now all of the bullshit and really hone in on the task you want to take care of because it's just as humans we are not wired to be able to um, multitask in a hyper efficient way as much as davis would like to think he can play poker and do all this stuff at once no i mean that is that is like the biggest lesson for like if, if i could if i could give myself like an ability to do anything i think it would be grant myself the self-control to get work done and like disconnect my computer from 
like literally like disconnect it from my Wi-Fi, turn my, turn my phone off and, you know, just work for like hour, two hour blocks or whatever. And like that, that like legitimately to me, like would feel like a superpower, I think. Yeah. It actually just made me think of a service that I would subscribe to. Cause obviously people have those uh, plugins or tools where it's like, okay, block my internet for this. Amount you can, of time. you can just at soccer Dave. <laughs> right. But so this is what I want the evolution of it that I would start subscribe to. So like, say I have to write um, some copy for something and I know I need these three windows up in a Google doc or whatever. So you put in the inputs to your schedule and you're saying from 11 to 11:45, I'm working on this copy. When that time clicks, it pulls up those windows for you that you've already selected in bookmark. And those are the only things you have accessible. And so you could go put in the thing. So it's like, okay, I want to meditate. All right. That, so all of that shuts down. And the only thing that comes up is my headspace app at that time. I think I would absolutely crush within an environment like that. Yeah. Just the more structured your interaction is with your phone. Cause what, what you really realize, like if you, you ever look, uh, your phone doesn't have this, but iPhones have the, no, it does. The, Mine does the screen, the screen time report. Yeah. And you know, I mean, a lot of the times I think like, Oh, I'm i uh, I'm responding to a fantasy football trade offer. Um, I'm sending a work email. I'm checking Slack. But, but what it really is, is for every, every um, thing I do that's like in some manner productive, checking emails, whatever, I'm also spending like seven and a half minutes, um, you know, reading my responses on, on Twitter or whatever. And uh, maybe, maybe I should just delete Twitter off my phone. Maybe that's, maybe that's the answer. So I didn't do that, but I did turn off all of my notifications. Notifications. So, so um, what big thing for me is like, and I'm sure you're the similar. I have like different group chats. Like one of my, my, yeah. my best group of buddies, our group chat is on Instagram just because it just is easy in there. And then I have ones that are on group me or whatever. And so I was just getting pulled constantly. I would have a notification, go check this chat, go check a Twitter DM, whatever. And so when I turn those all off, like now I, I will check my Instagram DMs like twice a day and I'll hop in the conversation, but I'm not constantly getting pulled into it away. And at least now I feel, am I at peak efficiency? No way. But at least I've taken ownership of when I go and check in on those things as opposed to being subjected. Because we all know when you have a notification, we are powerless to not check check it, to check that notification. So that's been a big help for me. And what you'll realize is like, I used to think, well, what if someone sends me an urgent message or they need anything? It's like, it's not that big of a deal. There's nothing that can wait a couple hours or even a day, you will survive. So I have all text messages muted, except actually, this is funny. You're not, you're not muted because you have, um, I, I just have never done it, but also, uh, my, well, one of my best friends from back home and my girlfriend and that's it. But everyone else, everyone else is on do not disturb. Uh, and then obviously I can get, I can get phone calls and that'll come, that'll come to my watch that makes sure that I'm permanently attached. And I just get, I just get like every app on my phone is just set to no notifications, um, except for Gmail and Robinhood. And that, that's it. Those are the only, so like, at least, at least my phone is, I try and make it like less of a gravitational pull. 
Yeah. And it, it really helps shift your mentality because again, before say, I, say I went an hour without looking for my phone, which, you know, we all deserve a medal for, I know if I run over there, Oh, I'm going to have all these notifications. I can have all this stuff. Now I know I can go look at my phone right now. There's no notifications because I turned yeah. them all off. So right. it takes away that urgency to pull you away from the other things you want to do because you know, they're not there. Um, which I think is very helpful. It is. It's just, um, you know, we're, there, there are going to be so many studies done and, and books written about what cell phones and what the internet have done to the human brain. You know, when, when, when all that stuff comes out, uh, you know what, I mean, it's already starting to be published, but imagine, imagine the book to be written about what cell phones have done to the human brain in 20 years. And it's just going to be like, we're we're, like, there are going to be like physical mutations done to the human brain. I'm sure. Yeah, it, it is. Le- it's legitimately scary. And like you said, like this research will still I'm sure studies have already started, but we will not know for a while uh, the actual uh, effects on it. But we all joke about our brains being broken. They are legitimately broken. I mean, mine. Yeah. I mean, my, you, you've spent, you spent time with me in person. Like my brain is, my brain is irreparable. Like it's just, uh, well, it's never coming back. The only difference between you and me is that if I had my phone on me or whatever, like I would fall into the same habits. I've just tried to get better, um, at just putting my phone, like putting away it somewhere else because it, it is wild. Like, and again, I, I'm not actually patting myself on the back for this because it's not impressive. But it's like if I go on, say, a long walk with my wife uh, and I have my phone, like I'm going to just check it like three or four times throughout that walk. And yeah. I'm going to want to check it. When, when I leave it at home, which I do, I don't care. It's not like I miss it because I literally don't even have the option. And I also then realize my brain actually doesn't need it. I can be fully present or whatever. And again, I'm not patting myself on the back for this. It's absurd, but it is just funny how it's the out of sight, out of mind thing. And you do realize, oh, you don't actually need this dopamine drip of notifications. It's just knowing it's there. The temptation is too great to pass up. Right. I mean, that is the, the, (laughs) so I did that episode with, pat a couple weeks ago where i was like oh yeah you know like i'll 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 like listen to podcasts while i'm falling asleep or like watch tv in the shower or whatever and i had a, i had a couple people dm me being like dude are you are you like dead ass like you really actually do that and i'm like yeah and ever since that i've been so self-conscious about it that i like have to get away um but then the i mean the only other time i don't have my phone is when i walk the dogs at night and that like that that's it like that's the that's the time to be away, which is, is very similar, but I, you know, we should all, we should all build more in. Okay. I want to, I want to end, I want to end with this. Um, have you been buying Bitcoin during the, the pandemic? Have you been, have you continued your weekly buy? Yep. I haven't touched it. And then just kind of for my own monitoring, obviously it's monitored on Gemini, like all my purchases, but I just keep my own spreadsheet, uh, where I just log it as literally, again, it's, it's logged somewhere else for me, but just it's kind of the act of reminding myself, okay, I made this investment. I want to see what my average purchase price has been. And yeah, I have not touched it every Monday. Uh, I have a, a small purchase of Bitcoin and I like it. And I also think if we did get a big bull run and it pumped up, I might actually think about turning it off um, and one thing I've really wanted to do was, you know, dollar, dollar call, I can't talk dollar cost average out if we get a huge pump just to make sure that, um, I am taking a little profits off the table, but considering we've just been in this eight to 10 K range for months, I'm just months. letting it ride. Yeah. 
I mean, it's been one of the least volatile things that you could buy, like, which is weird. It is funny. Yeah. And again, my whole thing, I've, you know, this, this circles back to like DFS and fantasy and stuff too. And talking about taking your emotions out of things, you know, it's like I have my relationship with Bitcoin is now entirely emotionless. I'm not sweating. Yes, it's fun when it pumps or goes up, but I honestly am not sweating it. Yeah, I don't sweat the price on it. Like, uh, I think there was like a there was like a couple days there right at the like March 14th through 15th where the price like uh, they, there was like a flash crash on Bitmex where you could buy it for like 3,800 or whatever. But like, I don't know. Like, is the is the is the threat of Bitcoin going to zero even real to you? Like, it's not to me at all. Like, I like no. it. No, there's just not, I don't even really foresee anything that could make that happen. Right. And also I, I agree. I don't think that's a real threat, but I also, when I invest in this, I am not delusional. When I, every money I'm dollar I'm putting in, I realize could go to zero. This isn't me just investing in like general index funds or a Vanguard mutual fund and just knowing that it's going to continually go up a little bit. Like I know it's still volatile and I'm okay losing every bit of it if some weird thing happens. Uh, but I think that's why it's just a good um, investment to kind of diversify where your stuff. Truer words. Do you do you own any prestige alt? So I ended up, I think we might've talked about this a while we, ago. I did like an we audit. We did, yeah. Yeah, where I consolidated um, a lot of my stuff. Um, but I still, I still have the initial, uh, I actually have it open here on a tab for where I have them. So I, I still have some stuff on finance, like a, a lot of my random shit coins that I just have not touched because I would have been underwater on them. And the site, and it, this might be dumb logic, you know, you know, sunk cost fallacy or whatever, but I'm like, if one of these ever pumped, I would feel way more sick. so mad. Yeah. Then if I just like sold and took a product. So I'm like, I'll just, I'll just let them ride. My big thing was just making sure I had access to them. So I consolidated them to Binance as opposed to being in all these random locations. I have, so I have obviously some bags left. I have um, a couple things that I, I like after you and I talked about the audit, like literally I can't get to them. It's just like they're, 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 Coins lost, I don't know, you know, probably I have some left on BitMEX, probably some left on Binance that are just, uh, they're, they're there, they're there to be had and whatever. I, I think that um, the idea of like the alt summer, like I, I think it's gone. I think it's done forever. I don't, I think, I think the, the altcoin has died. I don't even, I don't even think like the Ethereum bros believe in like the flipping anymore. Like it's just cryptocurrency had its moment in the sun and it's it's bitcoin and and nothing else even exists kind of like kind of like um like dot com stocks you know or whatever yeah. like yeah it's just like they were they were fun for a moment but that's a bubble and the bubble's not coming back yeah and honestly like the way i'm gonna spin it as the altcoin craze was a very valuable lesson um an expensive yeah. lesson but a lesson that i think ultimately will end up being a profitable lesson in the long term. <laughs> I mean, anything that can keep me from like buying stuff that like sounds like a good idea, but has no practical application. Like this is a good thing. That's a good life lesson for me to learn in general, but like things that you don't have a use for, um, don't buy them. That, that's yeah. just incredibly good advice. Pete, what do we, what do we want to plug? You, you want to plug, you want to plug ship chasing? 
Yeah, that's the only thing that I would really like to plug right now. So Pat Crane and I, we are drafting in a slow main event draft, which is this is the first year they've offered them. And what we're doing is we're doing a mini episode about every one of our picks. Um, and I guess you could say that's self-indulgent and masturbatory, which is probably true. But I think also it's one of the only places I know of where you can hear people talk through very, very specific decisions and how it affects their entire draft. And um, they're already our most listened to episodes, even over our weekly Wednesday one. So if you want to hear us talk about very specific de decision points in a, in a high stakes draft, uh, I would recommend checking them out. Yeah, everyone, I would uh, I would encourage listening. Maybe we will get uh, a quad manage football guys team in or a, a, a try manage uh, football guys team in there at some point. Everyone, thanks for listening. We'll uh, we'll be back next week. Build digital first customer relationships with Salesforce Digital 360. Connect every marketing, commerce, and digital experience on a single platform. Innovate fast with easy-to-launch sites, campaigns, and apps. That's more relationships, more revenue, more return, and more success. Salesforce Digital 360. Hear from our customers at sfdc.co slash digital 360.